Hello and welcome to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Hosea, and I'm joined by my co-host, Moses. How you doing, Moses? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. So, uh, this is our introductory episode. Uh, we're going to just talk for a second about what our podcast is about, who should listen, who we are, that sort of thing. So, just to start off, uh, we are obviously a Mormon history podcast. And one of the things that we are wanting to focus on, since there are a couple of different Mormon history podcasts out there, is a couple of different approaches that we're looking at uh, trying to incorporate into how we go about it. So first off, we want to talk about Mormon history in a couple of different ways. The first way is is we want to take a kind of a balanced approach to Mormon history. Uh, What does that mean? That means that we're going to be looking at a lot of different sources, uh, both from what we would call a believing perspective. Uh, and, and we're also going to look at some other sources from a more naturalistic perspective, uh, one that doesn't necessarily take into account the metaphysical events of angels appearing, of, of God intervening, uh, just some different points of view about the advent of Mormonism. Now, one of the important points that we want to want to get across is is the message that we're, we're delivering. We want it to be accessible to whoever may listen to this. And we want it to be broken down into a basic enough language so that anyone who's listening will be able to understand what we're talking about. Um, I'll pipe in once in a while here to offer some clarification or ask for clarification even. Uh, but we want this to uh, this message to be able to be interpreted by anyone. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing that we're going to really try hard to do and make it really... Uh, interactive is that we're going to make this as informative as well-researched as possible, meaning for every every part of this that we're talking about a specific source, uh, whether it be a primary source or a secondary source, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit, uh, we are going to provide references in our show notes and our website so that everybody can access and really kind of judge for themselves. That's what we're here for. Uh, So as we go along, we want it to be, again, interactive with you as a listener, and we want your feedback on whether or not you think we're basically whether or not we're doing a good job and how we can improve and so on. First off, we are not historians. Now, that, that doesn't mean that what we have to offer isn't valuable, and we hope that it is, and we hope that we can add as much value to uh, your exploration of Mormon history as possible. However, we want to make a disclaimer right at the beginning that we are not claiming in any way to be coming up with any kind of novel thesis for Mormon history. Uh, we're simply taking sources that we found, a lot of it secondary sources of other historians who have written on the subjects, and kind of doing a comparative study, being able to bring them all together. Now, uh, now with that being said, uh, just because we are not historians, that should not discount what we have to say. There's a thing called uh, authority authority bias or defer to authority bias. It's cognitive bias where we say, oh, well, you're a historian or you're an expert, so I'm going to put more weight uh, on what you're saying or on your opinions more than this other person who's not an, a historian. The reason why we talk about this is, is first off, we want this whole podcast to be on open and honest discussion. We want to be, we want to be intellectually honest, and we want to be honest in, in how we explain things. And that's very important that we get that out there, that we are not historians, just so that you're aware and you can avoid that authority bias. That's exactly right, Moses. So we're, we're really honestly just going to try to open this discussion up to everybody and and really make it so that you know that you as an individual 
don't have to necessarily be an historian to understand uh, the, the details. Get into the primary sources. Get really familiar with a lot of the source material here. Uh, one quick aside to that is that there are plenty out there who are not necessarily considered historians in the in the academic set. They may not be credentialed, uh, but have had wonderful contributions to the the dialogue of Mormon history in the past. And I want to actually highlight one person in particular who is not what we would call a, a credentialed historian per se, uh, but who has added uh, a lot of key insights into Mormon history. His name is Brent Malkaff. In particular, his book, New Approaches to the Book of Mormon, Explorations and Critical Methodology, was a fantastic compilation of a couple different uh, research papers in which he also had a contribution. So you don't necessarily have to be a historian to have these impa you know, impactful contributions to the community and to the literature. And that's that's why we're here. We really, we really want to create that kind of environment here. Uh, Another point, we're not advocating for either disbelief or for belief. Uh, we want to make that extremely clear. If you are, uh, and we're going to get into who should listen here in a minute, if you are an active LDS, you know, believing member, and, and we'll say, you know, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're in no way saying that you need to leave or to, or to believe something different or to change anything at all. We want you to participate. We want you to be here. We want to hear your opinions as well. If you are on the other side of that spectrum, we'll say, and you have uh, uh, maybe a modified belief or you have no belief or you were never uh, a member of the church, we also appreciate your contributions as well and want to be as accessible to everybody as possible. In addition to that, we want our listeners to kind of drive the, the content, drive the direction that this podcast goes. With that said, we'd like to direct you to our website, which is uh, nomanknows.com. You could also reach out to us on Twitter at nomanknowspod or reach out to us on our Facebook page. All right. So who should listen to our podcast? Now, I kind of touched on this just a second ago. We want to be available to the entire spectrum of belief or non-belief or anybody. In particular, we're probably going to have the the most listeners in the LDS audiences, whether it be active believing members of the church, members of the church who may be somewhere in between questioning faith journey, uh, lots of different ways to describe that. Uh, and also people who are, are no longer affiliated with the church or no longer uh, a part of the church, but also still like the history and have a fascination for it, which is common. Uh, and then finally, of course, people who never were Mormon. Now, in case you haven't figured it out, my name is not Moses. I'm not Hosea. His name. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we want to kind of explain who we are, get, kind of give you, um, give you an idea of... of of our backgrounds without giving away who we really are, like our true identities. And it's really important that, that we maintain our anonymity during this podcast. Um, Hosea, do you have, uh, do you have a couple of reasons there that, that you'd like to maintain yours? Yeah. You know, honestly, it, the number one thing for me, I want to make sure that everybody knows that this isn't about us. Uh, it's not about me. It's not about you. It, it's really just about, making this uh, content for people to enjoy, to not have to worry about what our story is necessarily, but to really just lay it out there so that people have that in front of them with no regard to who we are. One of the one of those things too, um, when we are, are talking about the historical content of the church, we may be bringing up some things that's kind, that are kind of uh, controversial. 
because we still have connections and relationships that are uh, that are solid believing members, we don't want them to to be swayed by the things that we talk about. We want to we want to maintain that anonymity for ourselves as well as for family members and friends that that still are super faithful that are not aware of the full history of the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, with regard to that, I want to kind of give you just a little bit of background on who we are. Uh, we'll call it sort of a redacted history, <laughs> personal history, our bona fides, if you will. Uh, I personally grew up in the church. Uh, I was baptized at eight years old. Uh, family was all members of the church. Uh, deacon's quorum president at 12, teacher's quorum president at 14, you know, assistant to the bishop when I was uh, a priest. Uh, I've had pretty much a, a standard or, if anything, a very involved uh, history with the, with the church. I uh, served a mission in Europe uh, for the full two years, came back, and uh, I, I, I married in the temple with my wife and uh, for several, several years now. And uh, so there's a lot of history there. I don't want people to be in, in any way uh, dissuaded in, in, or in any way think that we don't have what I would call an insider's viewpoint. We very much do. Uh, Moses, why don't you tell them about your background as well? Absolutely. So I, I was born into the church as well. Grew up through believing. I was baptized at eight, just like Hosea. I probably didn't hold as many uh, leadership positions as you have, but I mean, <laughs> Uh, I Maybe was, you're lucky. Uh, yeah, no, I'm okay with that. Trust me. Uh, so I, I was also, uh, I think the highest calling I've ever held was uh, second counselor in the elders corps presidency. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, I've served a mission. I've, I married in the temple as well. And, and I have uh, very dear and very close friends that, that have helped me along the way that are, that are still just super, super strong members of the church. Thank you for that. And one of the things that, uh, the reasons that we're doing this podcast, there's a number of them, honestly. One of them is we really believe that there's a need. Just looking through some of the material, this is a, this is a journey that I've been on for many years now. Uh, I've been on for over a decade now. And in that time, a lot of things have changed, uh, really just a lot of things. Uh, there were a couple of podcasts to begin with. There were maybe some blogs to begin with when I first started uh, having some questions about church history. Really, not so much questions, it's just an interest in church history. Um, and and I suppose it's a good idea to tell you now as well that as I was going down that path, my intention was always to try to defend the church in all cases and to always try to find reasonable answers to some of the questions that people would present. And I never thought uh, in any case that I would ever come across a, a, a result or a, a, an answer that didn't make sense. Uh, and, and so that's kind of what I'm bringing to the table here as well, saying that while today there are a lot more resources available, including the church's own essays that have been published on the church's website, including the Saints book, which is the, the primary thing that we're going to get into here uh, as we go along, including just a number of different things, podcasts out there. There, Just to name a few, there is the Sunstone History Podcast. There's obviously Mormon Stories is a big one. Uh, there's there's Radio Free Mormon and uh, and Bill Real, Bishop Bill Real's podcasts. 
what I have found, and, and Moses, you can kind of correct me on this if I'm if I'm wrong or if you see it differently. What I found is that there's not really that many out there that are sort of serial podcasts. You know what I need to actually mention? Naked Mormonism is a great one from Bryce Blankenickel as well. There's not a whole lot of serial podcasts out there that, that go through the history chronologically uh, and, and topic by topic and do a deep dive into source material, essentially. Uh, which is really what we're aiming to do here. Uh, one thing to point out with that as well is he, Bill Rills, I mean, he's he's an expert in the in church history as mm-hmm. well, uh, Radio Free Mormon. Uh, he does more more interviews with, with uh, believers and non-believers alike, mm-hmm. um, where John DeLynn does. But but the thing, the biggest thing that the, all of these lack, I mean, they, they may touch on the history uh, throughout their throughout their podcast episodes. Right. But there's really nothing that actually focuses on the uh, the church's version of, of church history versus what other sources there may be out there. Now, we don't want to focus solely on one source of, of information or a source of, of historical material. Uh, by that, I mean we don't want to focus on just what is the approved corollary within the church, and we don't want to focus on anything that may be construed or, or viewed as, as a negative uh, towards the church. We're trying to be as unbiased with this as possible, just so that there's a well-reasoned and uh, well-narrated history of the church. Uh, as mentioned before as well, uh, we plan on providing as many links to our sources uh, as possible, a- annotating as many things as possible. And when we do that, we may miss things. So please reach out to us at nomanknowsmypodcast at gmail.com or the website nomanknows.com. Let us know. Uh, we're always open to criticism, whether it be constructive or not, whatever you want to throw our way. We're all ears. So just uh, as you listen, let us know because we're listening to you. And the other thing uh, to remember with that, when we're providing these sources, we want you to go out, educate yourself too. If you want to examine the sources, try to read a little bit more in depth, uh, and then provide that feedback, that would be wonderful. And and we don't want to discount your opinion or what your viewpoint is simply because it may be in uh, in contradiction to what we're saying. We want to hear your honest opinion. Okay, so a couple of ground rules, some things to expect from us as we go along. First, we're going to use the term Mormon and Mormonism. I don't know how that's going to affect some people, but we really hope that that will be accepted uh, for the reason that we're using it. And, And namely, it's to save time. It's really kind of arduous to say members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints every time I'm referring to somebody. Um, I, I, I'm personally going to refrain, and I think I can speak for Moses on this, we're going to refrain from using the term saints to describe the early members of the church probably as much as possible. That may slip in from time to time. But again, we really kind of want to keep a, a balanced conversation going forward that doesn't necessarily preference one side or the other. In addition to that, we're going to be using proper names. We're going to be using, uh, instead of the prophet Joseph Smith, we probably would say something like Smith Jr., Smith Sr., Harris, etc. In any case where it's going to be a little bit confusing as to who we're referring to, we'll make that clear. Um, But we're wanting to be uh, somewhat academic in our approach here. And so speaking of academic approaches, I want to briefly discuss a little bit about historical methodology and historiography. Once again, we're not historians. However, understanding the process of history, the writing of history, uh, the selection of sources, understanding confirmation bias, 
these things really help us in, in deducing what history means. It's not so much as a recitation of facts, which facts, by the way, we can get into are tricky things sometimes. It's also just understanding how to critically look at the historical documentation, the historical literature, and understanding how to I- interpret that in a, in a way that is both reasonable and also understanding and, and I'll say kind to the people who were living that. Uh, we're actually going to come back to that concept here in just a second. So basically, I mentioned two things. I mentioned historical methodology and historiography. Historiography is kind of an interesting word. I think a lot of people may know it. But historiography means the writing of history over time. So basically, a good example of historiography in Mormonism would be we have several different histories that were written. Uh, the, the first would be some of the general accounts that were written by the scribes of Joseph Smith, uh, eventually Wilford Woodruff, uh, and then B.H. Roberts ended up compiling a, a version of the history in the turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, that's a difference of historiography. That's people progressing through different timelines and, and relating historical events to their time. And, and that's typically what does happen, is that the further we get from an event, or, or every stage along the way, I should say, we're always relating it to ourselves in some way or another. We're always relating it to our, per, our current circumstances. However, the further we get from events, a lot of times the, the clearer it gets and, and that's a kind of a tricky concept because you would think that maybe it gets a little bit darker, but a lot of times we actually come up with more material the further away we get. So it's important to understand that we're in a pretty good time right now to be able to understand a lot of what happened in, in early Mormonism and early American history in general, uh, but certainly in early Mormonism. So what can we learn from historiography and Mormonism? We can learn that historians have portrayed history in different ways just based on their interpretations which can and often does change as more information comes to light, just like I was saying. History tends to be written by the winners as well. So in this case, it's not like the Civil War. It's not like the Union was writing uh, the history and in the South, you know, was kind of relegated to their corner of the world. It's that the dominant version of Mormonism being what we'll refer to as the Brighamite Church, which is the church in Salt Lake, has the majority of the history that's written has the majority of the people has has a majority in pretty much everything. And therefore, there tends to be a little bit of a bias that comes out from that, from that point of view. I can't wait to get into that because that's such an interesting topic. But just know that there's always a prism that we're viewing this through. And through that prism, I mean, there, we have biases that are introduced, whether whether it's intentional or whether we're aware of it or not. So on our end, when we're when there's a possibility of bias, we'll try to bring that out and 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 talk about that bias as much as possible. But in addition to that, um, we want our listeners to be aware of biases that they may hold that could be that could be changing the narrative based on that bias. Absolutely, and, and biases that we, your benevolent hosts Hosea and Moses. <laughs> <laughs> hold ourselves because th- nobody is truly free of bias but it's in the coming together of these different viewpoints that we start to really see clearly and that's what we hope to to do here um a brief little foray into historical methodology i'm i'm sure to put a few people to sleep here but i think it's extremely important to understand how sources are selected uh there's a difference between what are called primary and secondary sources 
Primary sources are typically journals, meeting minutes, uh, etc. These are firsthand accounts, typically concurrent to the events that are that are occurring. Uh, in the in the Joseph Smith papers, for example, we have a lot of primary sources, and I will I'm looking forward greatly to referring to some of those and having all of you kind of dive into it if you want to and if you have the time, because that's kind of a an issue in and of itself. <laughs> Secondary sources would include. Things that were written by historians or otherwise people who were not in, involved in the event directly. Not really directly eyewitness accounts, but about the event. Uh, and we have these with books that we have today. We have uh, Saints would be considered a secondary source. Rough Stone Rolling, which we'll get into some of the other sources that we'll be using. Um, books, essentially written by historians. These are secondary sources. Uh, one thing to know is uh, the significance of primary and secondary sources or how to use those. Uh, primary sources are, are a good source for what the author was thinking at the time or or uh, what the events that were happening at that time. So they're, they're great for portraying what's happening. The secondary sources, they provide more of a context. They give, they give more of a background. What are, what are some of the, what are some of the cultural things that were happening at that time or, or, uh, other events that could be uh, affecting what's happening with the author of the primary source. Those taken together provides a more complete and a, a, a better picture of what is happening during that time. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. In addition to primary and secondary sources, we have to understand how we're, how we need to look at them, how we need to investigate them, so to speak. And with that, some of the techniques that we would use are internal or external criticism. In this, in this context, criticism is a funny word. A lot of people think criticism is inherently something negative. It's something that is, uh, is mean. Uh, it's what you would do when you have your sibling and you criticize them for the way that they, you know, laugh or something like that. Uh, in this case, criticism in, a, in an academic sense means to critically examine something, to, to look through and really it's, a, it's, it's respecting the document itself to understand both how it internally works and and how it should be found in its in its environment, and so that's where we get the difference between external and internal. External typically being the first, mainly because we want to make sure that it is actually a valid uh, document. A great example of this would would be in the case of forged documents that came out as a result of Mark Hoffman's forgeries. A uh, lot to be said about that. This isn't the time, but just know that. Uh, in, in particular, there was an individual named Mark Hoffman that was uh, coming up with some very interesting Mormon documents that were based really on, on actual verified documents that turned out to be forgeries, turned out to be false. Uh, big story behind that. I hope that we can get to that at some point. Uh, really not in the, uh, in the criteria as of right now. So external verification, meaning we need to know if it's actually a real document. We need to know to, to whom it was uh, belonging to, to whom it was written. And we also need to understand the accuracy of that document in particular, uh, basically for its own right. Uh, is this document in any way reliable from an external viewpoint? Uh, then we start to look inside the document itself. We start to ask the questions, what does it mean? You know, words are constantly changing. We need to understand that that there are words that mean something different now that they did before. A good example of that uh, in in one of the history textbooks that I've been re referring to, and I'll actually uh, reference in our in our source documentation, uh, s says that a great example is the word "gay." 
whereas several years ago, uh, you know, even 30, 40 years ago, somebody could have used the term gay to mean something completely different, to mean somebody who was happy or jovial or uh, excited, whereas today it, it is almost ubiquitously somebody who is homosexual. Um, that's a totally different meaning, and that can really change the meaning of the documents. We have to understand how words mean different things as time goes on. Uh, we'll refer to that as much as we can. There's a couple different... I can give you an example right now off the top of my head of, of a word that uh, is included in one of the first fishing accounts. Uh, and it's referring to how Joseph Smith was able to find the verse uh, James 1.5. And he says that he was looking through the Bible and found it promiscuously. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Promiscuous today obviously means, and I'm just reading from Google here, having or characterized by many transient sexual relationships, licentious, immoral, unchaste. That doesn't seem to apply uh, to what Justice Smith was saying, I don't think. Now, promiscuously in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary meant essentially random. It was a random occurrence, a random event, a uh, random confused mixture, it says, indiscriminately. Uh, and this kind of plays into another concept called bibliomancy, which we will get into as we start to discover some of the pseudo pseudoscientific origins, uh, pseudoscientific worldview of the early Americans, in particular early Mormons. So changing words, that's a totally different thing. Uh, we have to understand the author's credibility as well. I mean, who are they? Did they have any kind of special knowledge? Uh, were they Joe Schmo or were they somebody that was very critical to the event that's happening, very uh, very tied to the event? Uh, or were they somebody completely on the sidelines? That's important. We need to know when, how, and to whom the document was made. We need to understand the bias both of the individual author, and we also need to know the bias of the overall time that maybe the, the whole era, or maybe even just that community. Finally, we understand its place in continuity in corroboration with other records. Is this record that we're reading in line with other records that, were, uh, that are extant? in line with other records that we can go find right now and we can say, yes, this story aligns because of this, this, and this. Uh, we're looking for corroboration here. We're looking for the stories to match up. And on the subject of, of sources, really when we come into the scholarly debate, and we're talking about some very heated debates going on in, in, in Mormon literature in particular, the issues of selection of sources are really at the heart of most debates. We're talking about people who may say this source here is is credible is reliable and and we're going to use it to frame a narrative here whereas another person another group may say mm, it's not and here's why we think it's not and, and they may make their uh, assumptions based off of that but what we need to understand with that is that if there's a consensus in the historical literature of a particular source being reliable that's what we're going to go with um, because we have already been through that debate and we know that that's what we're going to rely on going forward I want to actually include really quick a quote from Steve Harper or Stephen C. Harper. He's actually the managing historian of the Saints book. Uh, he, in several different places, uh, top of mind right now is a podcast that he did regarding the Saints book, has quoted uh, a quote that's used by some historians that goes, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. When they are using this quote, which is actually from a book called The Go-Between, uh, written in 1953 by L.P. Hartley, they're referring to the, uh, a, a concept called presentism. And presentism is basically thinking about the past in terms of how we live our lives today. A good way to think about that would be 
we would maybe be judging historical characters on uh, er early American history that were slave owners on today's standards of we, where we would know that slave, slave ownership, that slavery in general, just the whole thing is a completely uh, abhorrent idea. We have to understand that at the time, the predominant idea wasn't what we think it is now. That's not to say that what those people were doing is excusable. It's just to say that we, we really need to put our hands in the time. So we can't judge the past by our present. But I will submit, and we're going to examine how we can judge the past in comparison to their contemporaries. We can certainly judge the past by the people who were in the past. And so that's something that we will look at going forward. And I think the main thing with that is is just to just to remember to take into uh, take into account the context by which these these opinions or or these documents were produced. Exactly. Okay, I think that pretty much sums up some of the introductory periods we. Appreciate you hanging with us for this little bit. I think it's going to be really helpful as we keep going forward. But uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into some of the first little bits here of the Saints book. And we're going to start with uh, a brief history of what I what I like to call a brief history of church history. Or maybe the historiography of Mormon history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mentioned before that Saints isn't the first attempt to come up with a consolidated history. The first attempt to really compile everything together was by a gentleman named B.H. Roberts. He was uh, actually president of the of the 70 back in uh, 1902. He created a, a volume uh, set, six volumes. It's actually six or seven, depending on which edition you have. Six volume set of the compiled history of the church. This is a monumental effort. I think we really need to show some appreciation to B.H. Roberts for his ability to kind of pull all this stuff together uh, from uh, just a hundred different sources. A lot of it was Wilford Woodruff's journals. A lot of it was uh, conference recordings of, uh, of talks uh, just and individual journals as well. The man did an amazing job of bringing everything together and is a major reason why we, we know so much uh, about our early history as we do is because he put the work in early on. Prior to that, we know that the church has established the need for a historian. As far back as 1830, Joseph Smith received a revelation in 1830 to record the history of the church. That's actually included in our current Doctrine and Covenants, uh, and in which Oliver Cowdery began that as a scribe. It took uh, several different hands after that. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, after B.H. Roberts uh, compiled everything back in 1902, there really hasn't been any concerted effort to do a complete history from the very beginning to the current day uh, up until now. I'll say that with a little caveat because I've actually got a couple of resources that I use and will be using as we go along. Uh, one is called Essentials in Church History. It was written by Joseph uh, Fielding Smith. That one was done in the 60s, and, and that one is, I would say, a very brief version of a compiled history. Uh, but really, there's been nothing like saints for about 100 years or a little over 100 years. Or at least uh, there hasn't been anything since B.H. Roberts' efforts uh, within the church uh, or on right. behalf of the church. Right. Now, I will say this. There actually was 
an attempt by Leonard Arrington, who was uh, the, the uh, shout out to Leonard Arrington. He was the first church historian to actually be a professional historian. He was an economic historian, but nonetheless, he was a professional historian who took over the, the church historian's office and really kind of opened things up to everybody. It was a very good period of time in the church. They, it's actually referred to these days as the Camelot years of church history. Kind of a fun little reference there. But anyway, he's he put together a volume, him and uh, a few others, uh, Davis Bitten, I believe, was a part of that project, put together another book called The History of the Latter-day Saints. And uh, that one is a great version as well. Uh, some interesting things in that one, and I think that we're going to refer to that a couple times as we go along, because they tend to be pretty open with the history in that book as well. Oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, also, Leonard Arrington was the first and the last actual historian to be a church historian. Is that correct? Well, I mean, so it, it depends on like how you look at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the historians that we have right now, I, I, I will say this. Stephen C. Harper is a, is a historian. At the risk of sounding annoyed here, Stephen C. Harper has let everybody know he's a historian and everything that he has said for the last several years, everything that I've heard him in makes constant reference to the fact that he's an academic historian. Uh, and I'm glad, I'm glad that he is. I'm glad that others are. It almost seems uh, to be a point of, um, you mentioned earlier, one of the cognitive biases being an appeal to authority. It certainly seems to be something like that with him. Although I don't think that there's anything, anything sinister with the way that he's approaching it. I think he just wants people to know that he's a credentialed historian and, and has, um, has the ability to to use the historical methodology in, in his approach, maybe better than most people have before. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a couple. I don't know if the church historian, which is a calling, uh, it has occupied by an actual historian. The last I heard was Stephen Snow. I don't know who the current one is. Hold on, I'm looking this up. You might be right about that, actually. Oh, yeah, I forgot. D. Michael Quentin was part of the church historian's office. Yeah, so they'll, they, they'll have historians as part of the church historian office, but the, the actual church historian, the Quote, authority, yeah. you know, like, uh, was it Marvin Jensen? That was... Uh, yeah, Jensen and then uh, Snow, Stephen E. Snow. Yeah, and then Snow. Um they they're not they're not actual academic historians and the the other thing uh of interest now that you mentioned uh Stephen Harper being an actual historian and touting mm -hmm. it bringing up the appeal to to authority that that uh, cognitive bias yeah what i think that it's important to point out too that we shouldn't be judging other uh amateur or self-proclaimed historians such as ourselves um, or, you know, we, we dabble in, in, in history. Right. I think it's important to point out that if you want to make that argument, then you, you also need to look at within the church too, for that appeal to authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. To discount somebody's opinion or, or what's being said or an interpretation of a historical document that appeal to authority can get you into trouble because now you're really talking about the church the church itself has had uh, one one other time that it's ever had a historian as the proclaimed church historian. As the the called 
by the Lord church historian. Um, that's absolutely right as far as I can tell. And anybody out there can just correct us if we're wrong here because I can't find anything regarding anybody since Leonard Arrington. But the last two, Stephen Snow and LeGrand Curtis Jr., were both attorneys. Uh, so not to say that they, they can't have, you know, great con- contributions to, again, to the historical dialogue. It just would seem that with the resources of the church that you would be able to put somebody in that position who's an actual historian. In fact, Stephen C. Harper would probably be a good option for that. He seems to be running the show anyway. So that's my take on it. Um, Steve Harper, if you ever listen to this, I'm more than happy to uh, love to have you on at some point. That'd be great. And, and talk about your point of view because you have a very interesting way of putting things together. And you're very familiar with the, with the history. Um, so I have to say that. I have to say that Steve Harper knows uh, quite a bit about the materials out here. Uh, but to understand that where he's coming from, and, and this is his own self-proclaimed viewpoint from everything that I've heard from him, he's he's basically starting from the assumption that uh, th- these events are from divine origin. Uh, and he's he's coming from that assumption, including that bias, and he's not doing anything to try to counteract that bias. Uh, and so the conclusions he comes to are going to be supportive of that bias in the first place. That's totally fine. That's If that's the way that he wants to do it, and that's the way that other people want to uh, understand history... Uh, I wouldn't say that that's probably the best way to understand history, but that's just my own point of view. Well, and we all have to have a framework to to right. come from when examining these the, examining history. We have to have that framework. That's just that's just our nature as humans um, to be able to frame things in a way that we can actually understand. Sure. So there's I don't think there's anything wrong with with coming from. A particular background or from a, a particular viewpoint and then examining history through that lens. But I would caution against that if you, I mean, we talk about the scientific process mm-hmm. and one of the biggest hangups with scientific process is to come up with a hypothesis and treat it as fact. And then, and then you generate these, these uh, experiments and whatever data you get from those experiments has to fit into that hypothesis if you're so married to the that hypothesis. Oh yeah, absolutely. so be really careful with that um, as you go forward. You, yeah. you don't want to be so uh, entrenched within a certain uh, narrative or a certain viewpoint that you uh, that you lock onto that and then you're you're not able to actually expand your view and take all data into account. Yeah, you you become a hammer, and then everything that you see is a nail. Absolutely. Okay, with that being said, I want to introduce you to a little brief intro to some of the sources that we'll be using uh, primarily, uh, no pun intended. We have a, let's say, a handful uh, that are predominantly secondary sources that we're going to be drawing from. The reason for that, uh, again, we can't stress this enough, being that we're not historians and not creating novel uh, historical analysis and synthesis, we're going to draw off of the conclusions of other people in a lot of cases. One of the main things that we're going to be using, as was previously mentioned, uh, we're going to go into a little bit more deeply here. The Saints book, and to be more accurate, let me just pull this up here. Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Volume 1, The Standard of Truth, 1815 to 1846, is the book that we will use as our benchmark. Now, what do I mean by benchmark? I mean that we're going to use the Saints book to examine some of the historical events and then cross-reference them to some of the other materials that we have out there. We may, from time to time, use some other church resources, such as the uh, Church Education System Manual, CES manuals. Uh, Particularly, I have the Church History in the Fullness of Times 
Institute manual, which we can look at. The version that I have is from the early 90s. I don't believe that there's been a whole lot of uh, edits since then, so we can use that. Also might pull from Essentials in Church History, the uh, book I was referring to earlier from Joseph Fielding Smith, some of these other uh, church official sources to kind of cross-reference both what the story has been in the past as compared to how it is now, and also kind of maybe draw some correlation there. So basically any official church sources that have come from, you know what I used to say on my mission is that it's church approved if it has intellectual reserve on it. We'll use anything that says intellectual reserve on it as a, as a, as a reference point. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, so moving in, you're going to kind of see that we have a little bit of a spectrum here. So moving in a little bit uh, deeper, we're going to be using uh, probably fairly frequently the book Rough Stone Rolling. This is by Richard Bushman. Uh, if you don't know about this book, my goodness, you need to know about it. You need to get it. You need to read it. Uh, it is a phenomenal work. It's a, a veritable tome, I would say. Uh, it's st- Is it still sold in Desert Book? Yeah, Rough Stone Rolling, that is. So it is still sold in Desert Book, we just checked. Uh, and, and it's one of those books that uh, we will use as a, as a very reliable documentary history. Uh, however, coming from a believer's perspective with a believer's bias in it. Now I'm saying believers in quotes. I'm not trying to put any kind of label on anybody. I'm simply stating that Richard Bushman, uh, who is a phenomenal historian, he's, uh, I believe, still a patriarch in the church and uh, actively engages in speaking activities where he talks about church history and other true claims to various wards and, and stakes across the country. Uh, he very much has a, a quote-unquote believer's perspective, um, although his perspective is, is somewhat modified. He doesn't maybe believe all the same things that we would get from, let's just say, the primary manuals or, or going up through the church education system. Well, and, and I guess we could say that he goes a little bit more in depth than your typical primary answers. Oh, that's, yeah, that's for sure. This is a, I mean, a really good treatment of the historical record. And he actually makes quite a bit of references to another book we're going to come back to. But moving on, another, this is going to be an interesting source for some people. There's a gentleman by the name of D. Michael Quinn, who has written a couple of different books out there. Um, the title may be uh, concerning to some people, but I don't want you to let it sort of color your vision of the of the book itself. It's called Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Now, we're going to get into that a little bit because there is a lot of material out there to talk about some of the things that were going on in Joseph Smith's early life or prior to him being born in his family in the Sharon, Vermont area. Just a, just a lot of different precursor events to understand how people kind of viewed the world in a very, I'll say superstitious, that's probably the best way I can put it kind of way. And so Quinn, people may not know this, is is coming from a believing perspective. Quinn does believe in the metaphysical or supernatural beginnings of the church. He believes that Joseph Smith was a prophet called of God. So I want people to understand that when we quote from D. Michael Quinn, that he does have a believer's perspective. And we're going to kind of throw him a little bit on the side of that part of the spectrum. Well, and additionally, I think it's important to point out that D. Michael Quinn has been excommunicated. Yeah, and and maybe so. so, And then we'll just say that he was excommunicated as part of one of the, quote, September 6th that happened in 1993. And the reason that was given at the time was for apostasy, although there may have been other issues at play with that. The kind of, I mean, I'll say asinine thing from that is that Mike Quinn has now been referenced in some of the church's publications as a source. They recently quoted something from one of his books, Extensions of Power or 
uh, no, the new one, uh, the wealth book that he wrote about the church. They quoted him uh, in one of their press releases, which I think is kind of interesting considering he was excommunicated a long time ago. So he still um, he still believes he was excommunicated. He's not uh, ever been rebaptized or had a, rest- a restoration of blessings, but just a, a incredibly thoughtful. This is a guy you're going to see more footnotes in his book than prose in a lot of cases. He's going to have more footnotes than he is going to have text. And that's wonderful because then we can go and we can use those footnotes to go to the primary sources ourselves and kind of make up our minds ourselves. So Mike Quinn, shout out to Mike Quinn. He's a phenomenal source. Next, we come to Dan Vogel. Uh, Dan Vogel, we're going to go ahead and throw into the other side of the spectrum here. We're going to throw him into what we would call the naturalistic side of the spectrum, just simply meaning that he's not going to try to explain historical events in a metaphysical viewpoint. He's going to try to explain them in a naturalistic viewpoint, which is to say that he's not going to try to uh, he, he basically is going to discount anything supernatural happening. So where there are visions or angels or uh, God speaking, uh, we're going to go ahead and try to look at a, a different type of way to explain that as opposed to those things being real. That's not to say that you have to believe that in order to use his his material. But it is saying keep that in mind uh, because that's how his viewpoint may differ from some of the others. The particular sources that we're going to use for Dan Vogel are Joseph Smith making of a prophet. Just this is wonderful. This is available to everybody online. We'll link to it in the show notes and online. It is a fantastic biography of Joseph Smith from uh, prior to birth to death. And uh, he, he does a great job of, of doing some synthesis of the historical record in a little bit different viewpoint than, say, uh, Richard Bushman does in Rough Stone Rolling. Or even him and, and Mike Quinn actually uh, disagree on a couple different points. Again, very excited to get into this and start talking about some of the ways that these uh, different historians approach this. So just to clarify, Dan Vogel is more uh, trying to remove the more metaphysical or the supernatural occurrences or to kind of maybe explain some of those as a more of a, a natural phenomenon. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, D. Michael Quinn, he has he uh, accepts more of the supernatural. Is that kind of? Yeah, he so Mike Quinn will allow for supernatural events to occur but stays very close to the historical record, uh, stays very close to some of the viewpoints that are happening. Uh, he's, uh, he's a kind of an interesting midpoint, I would say, somewhere in between, the, uh, in between the two. Okay, okay. So great. That's a great addition, actually. Um, and, and again, I'm kind of trying to organize this on a, a little bit of a spectrum here. There's going to be other sources that we use, obviously, uh, but these are going to be the main ones here. Uh, and then so we finally come to a, a, re- a resource that we're going to be using called... No man knows my history. So we obviously picked uh, this particular title as as part of the name of the show. Although I will say that the Fawn Brody, who is the author of No Man Knows My History, um, pulled that source, uh, pulled pulled that title from the King Follett discourse, which was one of the last uh, known discourses that Joseph Smith gave before he died. Um, I'm going to go ahead and quote that really quick because I think that this actually comes into alignment with our podcast. So uh, this is, again, Joseph Smith quoted in the King Follett Discourse. He says, You don't know me. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. I don't blame anybody for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I would not have believed it myself. So again, that's that's Joseph Smith speaking just before he died uh, in, in Nauvoo. It's an interesting expression, and it's something that 
uh, I think kind of allows us to sit in the mystery of who this person was and understand that maybe not all of our questions will be answered. Maybe he didn't understand who he was himself half the time. Uh, but we're going to really, I think, enjoy getting to know, uh, as as the quote says, getting to know Brother Joseph again. Getting to know Joseph Smith on a very personal level and understanding uh, some of his characteristics and, and some of the things that he did. Now, one of the things that I, I find really fascinating, if you were to go to the Wikipedia page on Fawn Brody, there's a lot of information uh, that you learn about her, about her history, about how she was brought up, and, and also her, her line of profession. I mean, I, one of the things I didn't realize was that she was a, a historian that worked out of, uh, uh, out of UCLA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so she was an actual historian. Yeah. But one of the interesting things, that she never did this with Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith Jr. or, or any of the, uh, the historical Mormons, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't really do uh, do a psychoanalytic or a psychoanalysis on the on Joseph Smith or any of the uh, the major historical figures within the Mormon history. Uh, but but so no man knows my history is more of a uh, more of a uh, historical narrative. It doesn't go into more of the mindset utilizing Freudian psychology. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, she does kind of try to delve into his mind just a little bit, but, you know, there's obviously some reservation there. And a lot of people at the time that the biography, that biography was uh, was written, which was in the 40s, um, they thought it was just vitriolic. They thought it was uh, a anti-Mormon just brag of lies uh, or tissue of lies, if you're Brigham Young. We'll maybe talk about that later. Uh, but in any case... <laughs> It, it, they they really discounted it uh, completely because she was no longer a quote believer. Uh, but but at the same time, we look back now and we see, and this has been referenced by many historians on on all sides of the spectrum here. Brody is now seen as a very positive source, uh, a very positive outlook on who Joseph Smith was and what his his life was like. I will say though that she does kind of fall onto the naturalistic side of the spectrum. That's why she's on this side of things. I wouldn't say that she's more than Dan Vogel, but she still does not necessarily use the supernatural as the primary explanation for why things are happening. So Brody is a phenomenal source uh, still to this day. She's referenced uh, so much by Richard Bushman in his book and others. I mean, she's she's just a great source to to go to uh, for somebody who wrote very early and was very familiar with a lot of the source material. And one of the things that's super interesting about Brody, Von Brody, you, you touched on this. There, there are current historians throughout that spectrum that still reference her work. She has... I mean, it's it's applied to both believers and non-believers. Uh, her work is is really uh, such a such a thoroughly researched piece of work that that all sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle, all through the spectrum, utilize her works. Absolutely. So, thank you, Fon Brody, for contributing such a massive uh, such a massive work in in Mormon history, and so early on. Uh, because there would be many years before things really kind of broke open, uh, really just the 80s, until things kind of broke open again. So, Okay, so aside from these main sources that we're going to use, obviously there's going to be a lot of primary sources that we can use using the Joseph Smith Papers Project, using periodicals at, at the time, for example, Morning and Evening Star maybe one. Um, you've got uh, other journals that may be used. So there's a lot of source material that we can go to and, and draw directly from if there's a 
a particular source that we think is important to highlight. Uh, okay, so that, all that being said, here we go. We're going to go ahead and, and start talking about some of the introductory uh, spots of the book. And we're going to start with the first presidency message in the book. Now, uh, I don't know if we said this earlier or not, but uh, Moses, this is actually your first time reading through the book, right? Yes, it is. Okay, so that's kind of one of the themes that we're going to hit on as well. Uh, I've read through it. Uh, this is this will be my second reading. Certainly this time I'm, I'm spending a lot more time in each part of it. Whereas the first time it was kind of a, a blast through it and I made a couple of notes here and there. So, But this is going to be uh, Moses' first time through. So we're going to look to him quite a bit as we go along to kind of get first impressions from uh, okay, so the, so the first presidency message actually starts off with uh, with the Lord asking us to remember. Uh, this is basically given as the main thrust of the book. We're here to remember our past, remember our people, remember our culture, and use it to strengthen us on a daily basis. Kind of like, almost like it's scripture, like the uh, the the Nephi verse that says, uh, "I liken the scriptures unto myself." Uh, that it might be for a profit and learning, or we liken the scriptures to ourselves that it might be for our profit and learning. I think that's what's going on here, uh, primarily. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that they mention the fact that uh, it's a, it is a narrative history. So the fact that it's a narrative history doesn't necessarily discount the fact of, uh, that, that it wouldn't be uh, as accurate. But the way that they're using it here kind of indicates the fact that they're saying we're taking stories from early church or as a, it's a four volume series. So it's going to be basically up until 2010, I think is what they said, uh, is, is when it's going to stop. And they're going to use individual stories to illustrate uh my guess is gospel principles really is what's going on. So stop me if this doesn't sound familiar to you, because, you know, this has been kind of the standard church history our whole lives, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um, it's basically you're, you're taking all these sources and you're trying to create a, a story. I mean, that's what the narrative history is, but trying to create a story aggregating all of these sources. And Sorry. they're used to reinforce uh, gospel doctrines and, and, and reinforce the teachings, the, I mean, from when we're in primary onward. Uh, reinforce the teachings, reinforce the, the doctrine of the church. Right. No, exactly. Uh, I, the things that come to mind for me, I mean, I'm thinking of the milk stripping story. I'm thinking of the, uh, the, sea, the seagulls. Is it seagulls? Yeah, the seagulls uh, coming in and eating the locusts. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So that story, I'm thinking of the transfiguration of Brigham Young after the uh, what we're referred to as the succession crisis, but after Joseph Smith's death. These are these are stories that have been a little bit problematic, and so that's kind of why I'm like, let, let's stop here for a second and think about this has not necessarily gone well in the past. So we need to be really be careful about individual stories that we use that are used from individual viewpoints uh, that, that tell a very directed narrative that you're trying to portray maybe a, a specific doctrine or viewpoint from. Additionally, I, I think, I mean, just to add to those stories, we cannot forget the first vision, which we'll talk about. We'll oh, talk yeah. Talk about the, the, the story that we are taught um, as the official version of the first vision. 
that's another story. Absolutely. Uh, so that's that's going to be I my guess is at least the full next episode, but it might be the next two episodes uh, because there's just so much to dive into. So look forward to that. Um, yeah. So so this is the use of stories and applying lessons from these stories. The other thing that they mention is that we testify that Jesus is our save, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and that His gospel is the standard of truth today. So they're saying His gospel is the standard of truth today. That I I can agree with. That I can get behind because there is this sort of uh, I, I've seen kind of reducing, but uh, th- this is what I'm kind of seeing when things get um, constantly pushed further and further and further back until the meaning is completely different from the beginning, uh, and and this is where I start to see a shift from at least the kind of Mormon history Mormonism that I learned as a kid growing up, and really my whole adult life. It was that the church history is absolutely true. Every event that we're told is absolutely true. You can get a confirmation of those events uh, through the Spirit and that they all are sort of interconnected and rely on each other. The more I look at it today, the more I see that there has been this uh, this reduction going back to, it's not the necessarily that the church history is true, it's that the gospel is true. Okay, so we start to look at what the gospel is. Well, we can reduce the gospel to the four basic principles, the faith, baptism, uh, gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. Evidently, I forgot repentance. So it's faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. And and that ends up being our standard of truth. So this, it kind of, do you see what I'm saying? Where it kind of just kind of brings it down to this very narrow view uh, of of what the quote unquote gospel is, or what the standard of truth is, yeah, and and in, in addition to that, um, it really kind of removes. Now you're able to compartmentalize the actual factual uh, historical context and, and the history from the gospel itself, and it, it's all of that, everything that culminates uh, down into what we now know as as the gospel of the church or the gospel of Jesus Christ is is drawn from and reduced from all of those historical happenings. Right, exactly. Something I need to point out here and I think is is really important for us to understand is that uh, as we go along there are things in in the church's history that have changed. We're we're going to highlight some of those things not to point fingers uh, of shame or anything like that, but just to be absolutely clear. Uh there's a term that's used in some communities uh post-Mormon communities I would say a uh, majority of called gaslighting. And the gaslighting would be saying uh, that, that something which has changed was always the same to begin with. Um, it's actually a good movie that just came out called The Invisible Man. I don't know if you've seen that yet or not, Moses. But at the no. very <laughs> end, uh, this, this very manipulative guy tries to tell this girl, his girlfriend, that the things that she was seeing and experiencing and hearing uh, just weren't true. They weren't there. It never happened. Uh, and that is just a case study in in gaslighting. So I'm not going to go ahead and harp on some of the buzzwords that are used out there, gaslighting being one of them. I just want to say that there are many things that have changed, not just in church history, in church doctrine, in the scriptures, in the Book of Mormon. Change is ever-present, and we need to get comfortable with the fact that change is ever-present. I, however, want to point everybody out to a particular uh, face-to-face interview that Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard did uh, recently. 
2017, I think. We're going to link to it in the show notes uh, and, and the exact spot where I'm referring to. But it's actually where Elder Ballard mentions the fact that I'm going to actually quote now. Uh, this is from my my transcript, so go ahead and make sure that I got this right, everybody, <laughs> that I didn't mistranscribe this. Uh, but Elder Ballard says, And some are saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there's more than one version of the first vision, which is just not true. The facts are, we don't study. We don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. For example, Dr. James B. Allen of BYU in 1970, he produced an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. Uh, there's a little bit of a joke from Elder Oaks there. I'm not going to go into that. Then Elder Ballard comes back and he says, so just trust us wherever you are in the world. And you share this message with everyone, anyone else who raises the question about the church, not being transparent. We're as transparent as we know how to be in telling the truth. We have to do that. That's the Lord's way. Again, the only reason I'm bringing this up is, is the fact that there is uh, demonstrable evidence that obfuscation occurred in, in hiding some of the uh, First Vision accounts, in particular the 1832 account. We're going to get into that. Uh, we, we, this is like the world's biggest trailer, I swear. Uh, we're going to get into that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we have to understand that some of these people are going to say, just trust us. This is the standard of truth. We really can't take anybody's word for it. Uh, I, I believe these men are good people. I believe that they're they're doing the best that they can. I hope that we all come from a place where we don't just take anybody's word for it. And that includes us. Don't take our word for it. We have the resources for you. Go look for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. Don't just trust us. That's all I want to say. And we'll do our best to also include opposing viewpoints as well. Um, the other yeah. other ways that it could be interpreted. Because that's that's part of this journey and, and part of this this experiment, I guess you could say. Really trying to figure out, figure out okay, what is, what is the truth, and and how do I interpret that for myself? Exactly. Okay, uh, moving on quickly, we're gonna just run through the preface real quick. Uh, the, a lot of this is actually just a reiteration. Uh, we understand that they're writing uh, in a narrative style. They're they're quote founded in historical sources. I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is maybe just a historical fiction. Uh, but but understand that, at least in the preface here, it seems like they're trying to say, this isn't a monograph. I, I don't think anybody was expecting that. But at the end of the day, go go look to the sources. One of the interesting things about the Saints book is that there are, there are footnotes uh, throughout the book. And there's actually this kind of back and forth with the sources. There's some that are actually just included in their in their entirety in in the footnote, and there are some that are just a link. And there's actually others that aren't a link that just are uh, a basic reference uh, to to a document that maybe. Uh, I had one experience. I'll just share this. I had one experience where uh, there was a particular document referring to that was really difficult to find and get to. So pay attention to how the footnotes are laid out because. There, there may be a uh, method to the madness here with regard to what footnotes, what extra information is easy to obtain and what is hard to obtain. Additionally, uh, as, as far as footnotes are concerned, there's, there are even some sentences, just single sentences that are a conglomerate of three or four sources. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so when you read through these sources and then you compare them to that sentence, try to try to tease out where, which part of that sentence is coming from which document. Exactly. 
I think this is an important thing for people to understand too. This is actually written in an engaging style that is accessible globally. They're they're trying to really write in a uh, somebody I, I heard this is the hey guys this is an example of the one time I'm not going to have a reference for you I apologize <laughs> somebody out there said that there this was written basically on a sixth grade reading level uh, and I'm assuming had some kind of uh, knowledge about the the intent there the reason for that obviously is because they've translated this into a, a bunch of different languages uh, they're they're spreading this out throughout the church in, in the in the global expansion of the church that's mentioned a lot of times in the preface actually. And so I totally understand the, the reason that they're going for very uh, simplistic prose, very kind of easy to read, easy to pick up uh, writing style. It does kind of do a disservice sometimes to what the what the actual historical record says. So but that's hey, that's why we're here. We're here to help you with that. And to go along with that, too, for it to be uh, understood and and to have a, a further uh, reach, a farther reach, also depending on uh, on your ability to to understand, comprehend what is being written, they want to break that down so ninety percent of the people who read it understand it. They can follow it along, and um, and without having to be really in uh, in depth of thought uh, to be able to understand. It. They really try to break this down so it can can have a, a, a more far-reaching effect. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, and also, so the the very last paragraph on this uh, has an interesting phrase. It says, "It's like a disclaimer." It says, "Saints is not scripture, but like the scriptures, each volume contains divine truth and stories of imperfect people trying to become saints through the atonement of Jesus Christ." Just Moses, what do you think that that means? I think it's uh, kind of a roundabout way to say this is scripture but we're not going to call it scripture okay because that's kind of what it sounded like to me i don't really want to put words in anybody's mouth but you're basically you're saying it's not scripture but it is scripture and i know that uh, and this goes back to what we were just saying a minute ago their whole their whole point here was to to say use it uh in the sense that nephi was talking about where he says you know liken the scriptures unto yourself that's that's what they're saying here i get that but they're also kind of saying, hey, this is this is scripture. I think that this might be something that's like uh, permission to use in church lessons and things like that. That's the other thought that came to mind as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't really think about that. But yeah, it's uh, you can utilize this to teach your Sunday school if you need it. Yeah, exactly. So if anybody out there is teaching Sunday school or teaching uh, priesthood, whatever, teaching anything, use this book because there's a lot of stuff in this book that is really interesting uh to 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 refer back to that maybe uh, no not maybe a lot of people are not going to know the, some of the stuff that's in here um i'm not saying to use it for shock value i'm just saying that the the whole intent of this thing and i'm going to throw this out here the whole intent for the saints project is a massive inoculation attempt uh, and when i say inoculation what i mean is there are certain aspects of church history that are uh that are like a virus uh, to some people. They're not received well. Uh, they're rejected by the system, rejected by the body or the mind. And there's been a theory out there for many, many years that if people would only be exposed to it earlier, because a lot of times people aren't exposed to it uh, early on, they don't know about it. They found out about it when they were in their mid-30s. And, and and it's like, where, where was this when I was growing up? Where was it in... I mean, they could have taught some of this stuff in primary. It wouldn't have been a big deal. They could have taught about rocking a hat in primary. That wouldn't have been a big deal. I wouldn't have cared about that. I, I, I listened to Tissues Among the Nephites, man. I had no problems with seer stones and stuff like that. So my my whole point of this is I think that 
the whole goal of the saints books is to and maybe inoculation isn't a word that I should use, but it's to get people exposed to some of these issues early on in a very safe way. I mean, they make it very safe, uh, at least from their perspective, and and they make it uh, easily accessible for people and in different languages. So, I mean, you could be in South America, you could be in Brazil, sharing it in a Sunday school lesson in Brazil, and, and hopefully people are going to understand it there. I think that the whole intent is to get people to start sharing this. So please, if you're if you're in one of these positions where you're teaching, uh, and maybe that's why you tuned into the podcast and we, we welcome you. Uh, use the Saints book. You don't have to use anything else. Just use the Saints book because it's going to have way more in it than you're going to see in, in any other resource. And in that, res- in that regard, I, I want to say hats off to them. I want to applaud them for this effort because this is for all of its flaws and all of the problems that, that we're going to examine as well as all of the good things we're going to examine. It's, it's the most that's ever been done. It's the most uh, correct church history of any out there uh, that the church has put out. And so I have to say, you know, applaud them for that. Yeah, absolutely. This is certainly an an effort to uh, get ahead of the narrative Um, rather than than trying to get people to not go out and not examine uh, the the more rough parts of the church history. They're presenting it uh, and trying to control that narrative more so in this book than they than they ever have. Mm-hmm. The other thing uh, to keep in mind too, I mean, we talk about we talk about like this being like the scriptures and and how that kind of gives a green light to gospel doctrine teachers to teach from. Going along that line too, there are many many members who get called to be a uh, gospel doctrine teacher or you know basically your Sunday school teacher. They start investigating these things. They go out to the internet. They start researching it more because they want to have more depth and meaning within their lessons. And then they start discovering a lot of this more rough history. This, I think, is also to help get ahead of that too so that you don't have to go out and search for these things. They're all right here. And, it, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know, much like, you know, like you, you said with, uh, I mean, inoculation or just creating that exposure, it pro- provides that exposure in a more safe place so that it doesn't exactly uh, challenge uh, challenge their faith. Yeah, it's, I, I want to be clear. Inoculation is not my word. Uh, I, somebody's going to have to correct me on this. I want to say that it came from Leonard Arrington to begin with. Daniel C. Peterson certainly uh, pro- promulgated it for quite a while. Uh, sorry, Daniel C. Peterson uh, was a professor at BYU, professor of ancient uh, Near Eastern studies, I believe, and, and is a avowed apologist for the church. I guess this would be a good time to explain what an apologist is, by the way. An apologist is, is somebody who takes the position of defending the faith. And a lot of times that means kind of aggressively, or in the case of Dan Peterson, it's pretty aggressive. Uh, so so this is something that he's he said for years and years about sort of inoculating people to some of the history, uh, some of the doctrinal issues, blah, blah, blah. I think it did originate with Arrington, but yeah, this isn't this isn't something that I'm coming up with. This is something that a lot of thoughtful people who have had to confront not only not only this stuff, but also just people encountering this, like you were saying. Like, I mean, John Delenn from Mormon Stories came across this because he was called to teach uh, seminary. And, and sorry, John, if you're listening and I got that wrong, I apologize. <laughs> but I think it was because he went uh, and taught a seminary and he starts Googling uh, some of the some of the stuff in the seminary manual and, and then came across uh, plural marriage. And it's like, oh, that's weird. Didn't know about that. So anyway, I, I just think that uh, the case for inoculation is actually a really good one. I, I, I have no problem with that, really, it, aside from the fact that 
the, the only the only downside of that is that you can have this impact of because so and so is more familiar with this than it's not appeal to authority. I guess we're coming back to that because Steve Harper is so familiar with this stuff uh, and he's fine and he has the testimony and he's going to church. Uh, then, then I don't even need to look into it because what's the point? I'm not really that interested anyway. And uh, all I need to know is if, if there's uh, if there's danger there. Uh, but but it's not really quite that simple because everybody's going to have a different response to things that may be hard. Uh, and I, I think that this, no matter how hard it is, it's always worthwhile to try to understand what's going on as opposed to just living in the dark. Because there's always this fear in the background that this looming, just pending doom or something in the background that's creeping up on you. I don't know when this is going to, when the bomb is going to go off or if it's going to go off, but it's there. And and that's something that um, I think is is experienced by a lot of people out there. So don't be afraid. Really don't be afraid. Examine how you feel about it and yourself and how you feel about suspending some of your your viewpoints and, and belief systems so that you can really take a, a, a deep dive into this with fresh eyes and understand it from a new perspective. Another thing to say about inoculation, oftentimes there's a negative connotation with that simply because you're, you're inoculating against what? You're inoculating against uh, something that could destroy you know, or kill you, make you very sick. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about inoculation in this context, we're talking about inoculating against the more negative uh, or can be perceived as more negative and rough patches, uh, the harder things to understand within the church history. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's why people recoil from that term. Yeah. It's just because of that there's that negative connotation. You're you're not inoculating because because something good could happen. You're inoculating <laughs> because of the bad thing. Right. So to wrap up, uh, thanks for listening so far. Again, we cannot thank you enough for tuning in. Uh, this is a new venture for us. It's a new venture, hopefully, in Mormon history. And, and, and we hope to really be able to contribute a lot uh, to this field of study. We are extremely excited for the journey. Uh, and, and we constantly are welcoming lots of feedback. Moses, can you go through real quick and just tell them how to reach us again? As always, uh, come visit us online at nomanknows.com. We continue our discussion online there. Uh, welcome all your feedback. You could also uh, reach out to us on Facebook at uh, No Man Knows. Um, and Twitter, uh, reach out to us at No Man Knows Pod. You can also reach out to us on Reddit at our handle, uh, No Man Knows My Podcast. So reach out to us, uh, please, please, please. The most important thing that you can do for us right now is to rate and subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast app, uh, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it may be. Please rate and subscribe for us. Uh, you know, if you really, if you really like us, five stars, we would really appreciate that. And also, uh, share the podcast with a friend. Share it with somebody who you think would benefit from learning, and you guys can learn together. Uh, in addition to that. If you can, we would really appreciate donations to keep this going. Uh, we want to make this as uh, informative, as fun, as uh, as involved as we can and, and offer the highest level of content. And, and to do that, uh, we're hoping we're hoping that uh, we can keep it going for a long period of time. So if you can, please go to our website, nomanknows.com and donate. 
Next episode, episode two, we'll be covering chapter one, Ask in Faith, in the Saints book. And again, cross-referencing some of the other sources that we have against that. This will be including events leading up to the birth of Joseph Smith. Uh, it'll include the famous surgery story where Joseph Smith has part of his leg uh, resected in a very interesting novel surgery. Hopefully we have some interesting things to add to that that you may not know. So a lot to cover in that. We're planning on releasing on a two-week schedule. Uh, so you should see these uh, every two weeks. And uh, other than that, thanks so much for listening, uh, and we we hope you uh, enjoy what we have to offer. So thanks for listening to No Man Knows My Podcast, the Mormon History Podcast. Stay tuned for more exciting discussion. (laughs) 